let's bow, shall we, in a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we're so very thankful for the provision that you've made for us in your Son. And we just pray right now that upon this service tonight, that there may be a real sense of your presence. We're most anxious, Lord, just simply to take your word and bring ourselves to a new level of understanding of what your will and your way is. But Lord, we know that we can't do this apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so we would rest in your faithfulness and your willingness to take the word and illumine our own hearts so that the eyes of our understanding may be opened and that we might behold from your word those things that will strengthen and encourage and help and warn and also teach. And we'll give you the glory, for we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Will you turn with me uh, to the book of Acts? And um, we'll have our finger there. We want to um, introduce uh, another subject, I mean a subject, uh, by going to several other passages of Scripture uh, tonight. But Acts chapter 2 is where we hope by the end of the service we will uh, be ended up. We're talking again about the subject of discipleship. And uh, we have already studied in some detail discipleship as it was taught in the Gospels by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how Christ made disciples. And now we've gone to the book of Acts. And we're, we're trying to see uh, some of the outgrowth of the ministry of, the, of Christ in the lives of disciples after the ascension of Christ, in the beginning of the early church. It helps us then gain a new perspective on the subject of discipleship, because we not only see it in view of its training process, but we see it in view of its activity in the local church. I remind you again, and we want to keep saying this so that you don't misunderstand, the book of Acts is a historical book. And therefore, it is not to be thought of as the pattern New Testament church necessarily, though there certainly are some patterns that the New Testament church is to follow, but we must always put the whole concept of doctrine in perspective as taught in the epistles. And so therefore, some of the things that we will see in the book of Acts do not necessarily teach doctrine, nor are they taught anywhere else in the New Testament as being the norm for the church. Some of them are historical events that happened. And therefore, we are not to necessarily expect that if someone throws us in prison that we're going to have an earthquake and that, or that an angel of the Lord is going to come and tap us on the shoulder in the middle of the night and help us escape or things of that nature. Now, those, of course, are miraculous things. But the same thing is true in regard to following a pattern necessarily for evangelism. We are not necessarily going to have a Macedonian call. Uh, God may use very normal means to uh, direct us and to lead us into his place of missionary service for us. And uh, we will not necessarily all be called away from one area and called to another area. And we're not to see that as being the norm, but rather see that the hand of God worked in the book of Acts with men, with people. And the result is that we are given great example, but not necessarily to be bound by that pattern. I think that uh, there are a number of things, such as the, the setting apart for the work of the ministry, such as they did with Paul and Barnabas. 
which uh, according to what we can gather from the book of Acts, was somewhat unique. And yet it's something that I think we can follow safely in the New Testament church, or in the church today, even as they did in the New Testament church, because it certainly is a good idea to set part, people apart uh, for the work of the ministry. Same thing for the, the matter of the choosing of men to carry out menial tasks uh, and carrying out the work of the ministry and so on. There are a lot of things that we can gain. Well, now we have talked already about a number of things that relate uh, to the book of Acts and uh, discipleship as we find it there. Uh, most recently, we have just completed a study on the concept of service in the book of Acts, looking at a number of examples that showed that there was a wide variety of service. And of course, all of the service that is possible is not mentioned in the book of Acts. And we're not given categories even for types of service in the book of Acts. Later on, we're given uh, in the epistles some concepts concerning spiritual gifts that kind of breaks things down at least into general categories of people's ministries. But in the book of Acts, we're not even given that. We're simply given some examples of the fact that plain, ordinary people like you and like me served God. They served in many and various ways. Some of them had public ministries. Many of them had private ministries. Some of them did what God wanted them to in a given instance. And we assume that they did other things, but we're not given any more information concerning them. God's in the business of using people. Now, we want tonight to begin talking about another aspect of the functioning of a disciple. And it's something that is clearly delineated both in the epistles and in the book of Acts. And the subject is that of stewardship. You remember in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul stated a general truth concerning the subject of stewardship. He said, moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. That's a very key word, faithful. Now, remember that God does not reckon stewardship on the basis of success, nor does he reckon stewardship on the basis of uh, what the world might call effectiveness. He rates it on the basis of faithfulness. Therefore, no matter what a person may have to offer God in the way of stewardship, no matter whether it's little or whether it's much, the way that God reckons is not how much you may give, how much time or energy or uh, how much of your abilities, how much of your money that you may give, but rather, are you faithful? And the Scripture makes clear that someday we'll stand before God to give an account of ourself. And in a nutshell, Jesus Christ expressed the fact that in that day, we will be asked to give an account, and to some he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. God evaluates our service and evaluates our stewardship on the basis of faithfulness. Now, in the New Testament, stewardship is emphasized on four different levels. Only the fourth one that we want to talk about in the book of Acts, but I want you to have these in mind. First of all, there's the stewardship of testimony. And if you'll look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, we'll kind of lay this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
and verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We beg you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. There is the ministry of reconciliation committed to each and every believer. Every believer is an ambassador, and it's an ambassador with a message. And the message is, be ye reconciled to God. That is the testimony of the believer. We have been reconciled through the death of Jesus Christ, brought into intimate relationship with God, and therefore we have a responsibility to share that message with others. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. Now, this is a little confusing in this passage of Scripture, and it really it, it warrants our study of the whole passage. But I want you to get one thing from it, and we'll, we'll uh, withhold trying to give the, the whole, uh, uh, ball of, uh, whole bale of hay in one, uh, one bit here. Paul is vindicating his apostleship in this passage. He is, ta- he is saying, basically, that I have a responsibility as a steward of God to minister to others, and particularly to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 7, Who goeth to war at any time at his own expense? You don't pay your own bills when you go to war. The government pays them for you. Who planteth the vineyard and eateth not of its fruit? Obviously, if you're a farmer and you plant the vineyard, then you have the right to take into your house a portion of that fruit. And that, of course, is a part of ancient law as well. Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Obviously, you do. Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the grain. Doth not God take care of the oxen? For saith he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thrasheth in hope should be partaker of hope. Now basically, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is indeed that the apostleship that had been given to him was a stewardship of testimony. And therefore, he would receive, he should receive, uh, that which was coming to him. It would be perfectly legitimate for him to even receive monies, because it's God's business to take care of individuals who have been given a responsibility before the Lord to testify. And the whole passage is speaking in terms of ministry to people, and particularly the preaching of the gospel, which Paul gives again as his testimony. Over in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25, of which I am made a minister according to the dispensation or the stewardship of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. God has given me a stewardship. He has given me a, 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 an ability to proclaim the gospel, 
an ability to testify concerning what Christ has done for me. That is a stewardship of testimony fulfilling the Word of God. And then he tells specifically what that witness is. It is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. And goes on and talks about what that involves, and that in itself is another subject. But it's the matter of a stewardship of testimony. The second area is a stewardship of time. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward them, or literally face to face with them, that are outside. That would be the unbeliever in Christ. Redeeming the time. Buying up the opportune moment. The word there for time is kairos. You remember there are two words for time. Basically, the two major words, I should say. There is the word chronos, which is chronological time the ticks of the clock. And there is kairos, which is the opportune moment or the seasonable time. And we are to buy up the seasonable time. Now, the way we can do that, it says here, is let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. You see, there's the combination in verse Five, it is a stewardship of time. And in verse 6, it is a stewardship of testimony, and they are linked together. One of the major ways that you can have a proper stewardship of time is to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, using every opportune moment to speak and giving an answer to every man. And, of course, we're told in another passage of Scripture that we are to be instant in season, out of season. We're to reprove, we're to rebuke, we're to exhort, and we're to do so with all patience and long-suffering. And so, therefore, it's a matter of, again, time and testimony tied together. And then a passage that you're very familiar with in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 16, where again it says, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Now, in this context, the way you redeem the time is to walk in the Spirit and walk in the fullness of the Spirit. If you watch the sequence unfold here, it begins in verse 15 by saying, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise. To walk circumspectly means like a person does on a tightrope. It means very, very carefully. And uh, so you're, you're to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You go through this passage and you'll see various synonyms for the matter of being out of fellowship. You see that he makes a contrast between darkness and light, like John does in 1 John 1. He makes a contrast in verse 11 with those that have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness and those that reprove them. He has, uh, again, in verse 13, the light as opposed to darkness. In verse 14, he has those that are awake as opposed to those that sleep, and those that are alive as opposed to those that are dead. Those that are alive are those in fellowship with Christ. Those that are dead are those that are not in fellowship with Christ. It's not speaking of physical death or even spiritual death. It is speaking of temporal death. It is speaking of the individual not being where he should be spiritually. And then he uses the contrast of those that walk circumspectly and those that are fools. 
And then in order to make it clear, he says, redeeming the time. How do you redeem the time? Verse 17 tells us, don't be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So there's a contrast there between those that are unwise and those that understand the will of God. Those that do the will of God abide forever, we're told in 1 John 5. And so therefore, or 1 John 3, I should say, and therefore we are those that, that are to be doing the will of God. In this text, that of course is a general truth, but in this text it tells us precisely what the will of God is that will help us redeem the time. Be not drunk with wine, in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be ye constantly being filled. The best way to redeem the time is to do the will of God. The will of God we know of for sure is for us to be constantly filled with His Holy Spirit. Now it's safe to conclude from that that the best way to have a stewardship of time is to walk under the control of the Spirit of God a maximum amount of the time having no known sin in your life, but staying in fellowship with Jesus Christ constantly. And then, so you'll know how to respond and act in the use of your time, it tells us that we're to speak to ourselves in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God, wives submitting themselves to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents. See, it gets very, very practical. It also tells us that fathers are not to provoke the children to wrath, and servants are to be obedient to their masters, and so on. All of that is related to this concept of redeeming the time. God tells us how we can best expend our moments. Remember what we saw on the very first Sunday of this past year. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. All right, now the third area has to do with the matter of talents. The matter of talents. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. As every man hath received a gift... Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now you see, God brings us immediately to the acme of the concept of gifts. It's not simply a matter of natural talent that he deals with here. It is a matter of spiritual gift. Every Christian has one, and every Christian ought to be exercising it. And in this text, it makes it very, very clear that there is a, that there is a responsibility in one of two areas, either in speak, speaking, or in serving. Same two categories that we have in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, if you check that out. Speaking and serving. It says in verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man serve or minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth. Purpose of either one. 
that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now I contend to you, uh, contend tonight, that if indeed spiritual gifts are a stewardship before the Lord, then also natural talents are as well. Because God is the possessor of all of us. And one passage that we could talk about is, of course, where we say, where it says, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are Christ. Or we could also point to the fact that the scripture makes clear that uh, everything we do, whether in word or deed, or whether we're eating or drinking, it's to be always done to the glory of God. And so falling under this category are are, are, of course, this matter of natural talents as well. And I think that in the light of that, that there is something that can be drawn from Matthew 25 in the so-called parable of the talents. Look at that for a moment, if you will. Matthew chapter 25, I want to make very clear that the talents in this case were not natural talents. They were, it was money. And it is speaking primarily of money in Matthew 25. I also want to make clear that this parable has primarily to do with the end times. Its primary application has to do with a future. And Matthew 24 and 25 are not to be interpreted in terms of uh, God giving, laying down rules and order for today. That is not the concept. But there are tremendous lessons that can be drawn from this parable. And so therefore, I think it's good just to take a glance at it. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 15. Actually, let's go to verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two and to another one, to every man according to his ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made another five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and dug in the earth and hid the Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought the other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou, did, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not spread. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou, uh, 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 there thou hast what is thine. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. He worried instead of worked. That was the problem. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gatherest where I have not spread. Thou oughtest therefore have to put thy money to exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with interest. Take therefore the talent from him, give it unto him who hath ten talents, for unto every one that hath shall be given to him that hath abundance. Uh, 
and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath, and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very clearly, without going into the kingdom implications of this passage of Scripture, very clearly, the one man was unfaithful because he failed to invest what he had. Now that has to do with money. But I want to just apply it in this regard when it comes to abilities, talents. You are going to be held responsible for abilities that God has given you as to whether you utilize them for His glory or whether you waste them, whether you just put them aside. Maybe you say, well, I'm afraid. That's what this man said. I was afraid. Maybe you just uh, say, well, I... Uh, uh, I, I really don't have time to invest. Remember, the time it belongs to him too. T so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. The rebuke comes, thou wicked and slothful servant. The real reason people don't use their abilities is because they're lazy. There are other things to do other places to invest your abilities where you can see more immediate reward than to invest them in a class of sixth grade boys or to invest them in, in, a, in a, a boys brigade program or to invest them in, uh, in, in sharing the gospel with other individuals, a combination of testimony and talents. Or perhaps uh, you find yourself often uh, with opportunity to, to use musical ability. And that musical ability is something God gifted you with. And it's something that not too many people have uh, from the sound of things. Uh, but uh, if God has blessed you with ability along that line, then you see the investment of that talent is a very important thing. And you see, God someday will ask you, what have you done with what I gave you? We talked about that in service, didn't we, last, the last couple of weeks. Moses, what's that in your hand? Only a rod. Cast it down. Pick it up. And became the rod of God. And God has given you talents and abilities. And he's given you spiritual gifts. And woe be to the person who hides it in a napkin and buries it in the earth. God wants you to use those talents for his glory. Now, that's, of course, by way of application, not interpretation in this passage, but nevertheless, I think is important. Now, the fourth thing, and the thing that is our sp specific emphasis in the book of Acts, is that stewardship of treasure. Stewardship of treasure. Again, we can refer to the parable of the talents in this text. We can also refer to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 13. <coughs> Almost the same story, just a little different. And this time, instead of talents, we have pounds. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy, or literally trade, till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. 
And the text goes on to show how they failed to utilize what had been given in the way of money committed into their hands because they did not recognize the lordship of the Lord. We will not have this man reign over us. We're not going to let him tell us what to do. Now the application of that in its first application is obviously that the nation of Israel had been entrusted with the oracles of God. They had been entrusted with the word of God. They had been trusted with the prophets. They had been entrusted with all of this. And God had committed to them all of these things. And what had they done? They said, we will not have this man reign over us. They would not recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. They squandered what they had. To apply it to our lives, God indeed is the owner of everything we have. And we have a stewardship responsibility with our money. And the Lord wants us to, to recognize his lordship over what we possess. Now it's rather interesting to me to note that when we enter into the early church, that one of the first things that this group of young fledgling believers understood and recognized was the concept of stewardship when it came to money. It almost frightens me to realize that the average person who becomes a Christian today is so far behind the new believers in the early church that there must be something wrong with the way we present the Christian life to new believers. I know, and some of you would testify that this was your experience, that sometimes new believers go on for years without understanding concepts of stewardship. And that's really a tragi- tragedy. I think that what it is primarily is, uh, well, let's say it's, it, it's a twofold thing. On one hand, I think it is an overreaction on the part of people like me to uh, criticisms that come because we talk too much about money. You know, you hear that. No matter how little you talk about money, you, you, you hear you talk too much about money. The missionaries talk too much about money. The preacher talks too much about money. The church talks too much about money. And there are people that object to us putting anything financial in the bulletin or saying anything financial from the pulpit because uh, there, it's an overreaction on their part to, the, to, to churches where they went where they were constantly haranguing for money and uh, having big sales and bazaars and all the rest. And then when that didn't fill the bill, then they stand up there and beg and beg and beg and beg for more and more and more. And because they've seen that in other places, they're afraid that if you say anything about money, that the, you're going to fall into that trap eventually. And so I think sometimes we just kind of back off and, uh, and, and act a little bit scared sometimes, afraid to say anything because of the kind of reaction we get from people. And we even we got some uh, interesting reaction from a number of people from the, the letter we sent out uh, several months ago concerning the building program, just basically telling you what was happening. And at the bottom, so if you'd like to share, 
And here's your opportunity. And we got some nasty little letters, you know. I'd like to be able to do what another pastor in the community does. When he gets an anonymous letter, he never reads it. If, it's not, if, if it doesn't have a signature, he throws it in the wastebasket and tells everybody that so they never do it. But I can't do that. I'm too curious. I've got to see what it says, you see. So you don't have to worry about that. Keep the anonymous letters coming because I read every one. But... <clears throat> But, you know, it's, it's fascinating because a bunch of people, you know, wrote, wrote nice little notes saying that really is lousy and all the rest and why are you dunning people for money and why are we going to mail soliciting now and so on and so forth, you see. Okay, so you get this kind of reaction and then you kind of run scared. And uh, so, you know, we, we're not really worried. We know the Lord's going to take care of it all, but at the same time that's kind of the inner reaction that comes. So that's part of the problem. And as a result, new believers come in and they never hear anything about money. And they figure, well, you know, that's, that's not a very important part of the Christian life. The other thing is that I think in the area of discipleship, we kind of, we kind of figure that if, if, we, if we told a new believer that uh, he should begin immediately giving his money to the Lord, that that new believer would be so frightened of that concept that he'd run the other way and we'd lose him. And I think we have that fear. And so we, we let those fears, the fear of man bringeth a snare, you know, the Scripture says, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And so I think we have to, we have to bring balance into the thing somehow or another and put up with the criticism and put up with the fear because new believers need to be taught the joy of giving. And I think there's a big problem. People do not understand that it's a joy. They think it's a chore. And yet the Scripture says that if it's a chore, you're not to do it. So if you think it's laborsome and all the rest, you're off the hook. God doesn't want your money. But if you can find joy and learn that it's more blessed to give than to receive, then you see God says, great, let's get together on this. You give and uh, I'll... Uh, uh, share with you so that you can give more, and you just keep doing it because it gives you joy. You know, somebody said that, that you're supposed to give until it hurts, and then keep giving until it feels good. And some people quit before, before it hurts, and so they never get to the place where they're given until it feels good. And I think we all need to learn this concept of giving. Now, you see, in the book of Acts, there is some clear teaching as to this treasure aspect of stewardship. Now once again, as I said at the very beginning, keep in mind the book of Acts is a historical book. What we see in the way of pattern, even of giving, has to be checked out in accordance with what the epistles teach. And if it doesn't hold, then of course we're not to necessarily follow that pattern, although we might get some good examples of some things we might consider, though we cannot teach it as doctrine. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. In fact, let's begin to read it. Verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now you remember what happened. There was the healing of the, uh, uh, excuse me, there was the, uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this was the response on that initial day where the Holy Spirit of God had filled the disciples and the disciples had preached, in particular Peter had preached, and the people came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And it says in verse 42 that they did four things. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That, of course, would have to do with teaching. And in fellowship, that was the koinonia, the sharing in common. And in the breaking of bread, this would include both the agape meal, where they shared their tables, the equivalent of our covered suppers or potluck dinners, as they're sometimes called, that were utilized in the early church. And it would also include the Lord's table. And in prayers. And of course, prayer has to do with general prayer here. And not uh, specific kinds of prayer, but the whole concept of coming together and praying. What happened? Verse 43, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Now, by the way, it is continuous action in past time. They, in that past time, constantly had all things in common. That's the, the, the way the verb is used in this particular passage, the imperfect tense. And then it says in verse 45, And they sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, or keeping on praising God, present tense, and having favor with all people. And the Lord added, again the imperfect tense, He added continually in the past to the church daily such as should be saved. You say, well, pastor, that's just what I was afraid of. I knew that if I came and heard this on stewardship tonight, that you are going to sure as the world tell me that I should go out and sell everything that I have and give it all to the poor. Well, you see, there's one of those things which they did in the book of Acts, which is not necessarily to be followed. The first opening time of the early church until two things happened, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, and secondly, the problem with the Grecian widows and the appointed deacons for the purpose of caring for them. Beyond that, there is no indication of this concept of sharing in common in the book of Acts. There was lots about giving. There was lots of giving that went on. People misunderstand this because even this was voluntary. And we'll see that as we go on that uh, this concept was a voluntary concept. It was not a matter of a person uh, being forced or by edict from the church, them insisting that he had to sell everything. Because even Ananias and Sapphira, you recall what happened? Peter said, was not that which you had yours as long as you had it in your hand? They could do anything with that that they wanted. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they didn't give their all. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was they lied to the Holy Spirit and said they gave all when in actuality they held back a part of the price. I, I'm more worried, I'm far more worried about people who will say they can give no more, that they've given everything they could when they can give more 
than the person who says, I've given my share, I'm not going to give anymore. I would be far more worried about the person that lies about it than the person who's boldly honest, even though sometimes we tend to frown on the second guy. Here's one guy saying, I have given my all. I can't give any more because I'm out of money. Now, really? What's that in your bank account? It's like old Saul, you know, when he said, I have, I, have, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. What meaneth this bleeding of sheep? If you slew the Amalekites and all of their possessions, then why do I hear the sheep? Oh, I was going to, to sacrifice them to the Lord my God. The people made me do it. And a bunch of other excuses. And Samuel says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now you see, there are a lot of people who say, I've given my all. Have you really? Really? You're like Ananias and Sapphira when you say that. It's far better to say, I've given what I believe God would have me give at this time. Or even better, I think, for you to say, I'm not given right now. Period. God will deal with your rebellion later. You know, that's another thing. But he dealt severely with the hypocrisy of those that said they gave their all. So just watch what you're doing. But remember, it was a voluntary thing. It was not something where they were forced to do it. It is not communism. They were not pooling all their goods for the, for the sake of, uh, quote, the, 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 uh, the common good. They rather were simply voluntarily recognizing that materialism could no longer have a grip upon their life. 3,000 converts, the birthday of the church, fellowship, teaching, the Lord's table, prayer, a sharing together around the table in the agape feast. The result was fear and wonders and signs and stewardship. Instant stewardship. The immediate implication of the gospel was a giving heart Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Freely ye have received, freely give. And here were a people that were so grateful for the salvation that was wrought in Christ that they were willing to give, literally, their all. You know, when the Apostle Paul was talking to the Corinthian church about giving, he said, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ, who was rich, became poor for us, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And off of that, he spun the concept that the people there should take up a collection for the needy Christians in the city of Jerusalem. The implication of the gospel is a generous heart. How can you help but give? when you think in terms of the price of Calvary. Now, the interesting thing is, and we're going to try to pick up some, some concepts of stewardship and try to look in some of the epistles and see if they match up with what we are to do. The first thing was, that it was in evidence here, was their giving was sacrificial. It was sacrificial. It says they sold their possessions. The gospel of Jesus Christ loosened the grip of materialism, and sacrifice became 
a way of life with these people. It became a habit pattern. Not something unusual or something that's done once a year, but rather a way of life. Perhaps part of the reason was because we know that the teaching of the apostles included much of that which Jesus Christ had taught. And Jesus Christ had taught, lay up not for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and thieves cannot break, break through and steal. For a man, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. In that same text, the Lord Jesus Christ also taught his disciples the concept that no man can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other, cleave to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. But mammon was not an idol in the usual sense, but rather was the god of materialism, the god of money. And so clearly the distinction was you either serve God or you serve the god of materialism, the god of money. And they must have taught their disciples this concept. And the disciples, because they believed that Jesus Christ could come at any time, because they believed that here they had no continuing city, because they believed in the concept of laying up treasure in heaven, the response of the heart of these brand new believers was simply that of sacrifice. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And look what Paul charges Timothy, bishop of Ephesus, overseer at Ephesus. He charges him with a responsibility to bring a message to those that are rich. Now, earlier in the same chapter, he has said godliness with contentment is great gain. He's also said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. But then his guns are focused on the rich. Verse 17, charge them that are rich in this age that they be not high-minded, nor trust, and the word is elpizo, which means hope, not trust, not pitheo, but, but the matter of trust, confident expectation. Don't be high-minded. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but trust or hope in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. They that do good, or that they do good, here's some of the things they are to do, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, that they be ready to distribute, or literally free to give, and willing to share koinonios, sharing in common, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now I want to say something about the concept of sacrificial giving. I think that according to this passage and according to other passages in Scripture, that the concept of sacrificial giving is not a matter of an individual giving and giving and giving and giving and calling it sacrifice. 
It is much deeper than that. Like Hudson Taylor, you know, after serving the Lord for over 40 years in China, pouring out his life for those people and having given up so much, somebody said to Hudson Taylor one time, Dr. Taylor, you certainly have made some great sacrifices for God. And Hudson Taylor said, sacrifice? I never made a sacrifice in my life. What did he mean? He simply meant that what he anticipated and knew in the way of dividends far outweighed anything he had done. He did not see it as a sacrifice. He saw it as an investment. Now the interesting thing is that most everyone that I know are willing to make sacrifices for something they really want. And they don't think in terms of it being sacrifice. They think in terms of it being an investment. You know, you get close to uh, the month of July and your vacation is coming up. You begin to count your dollars and you find out that you only have uh, a certain amount. And you say to the family, now family, we'd like to do this and this and this for vacation. But in order to do it, we've got to have so much money. And so we're going to tighten the belt a little bit. And we're going to kind of watch the budget. Not quite so many hamburgers and milkshakes and a few things like that. Uh, and uh, we're going to just kind of uh, watch that we don't make any little trips because we want to save that gas money. And, and we're going to put this all in a cookie jar. And when the time comes for vacation, we'll go and we'll blow the whole thing and have a wonderful time. And the whole family pulls together and nobody really thinks in terms of it being sacrifice per se. Why? Because of the hope that you have for reward at the end of the time. So therefore, sacrifice isn't even thought of. And you may long for a hamburger and say to yourself, but I can wait because we're going to have lots of hamburgers on that trip. And we're going to have a wonderful time. And you keep telling yourself that until finally vacation time rolls around and then you blow the whole wad and just have a wonderful time. And it's worth it in the end. The little bit of investment. And you see, this passage of Scripture indicates that, to me at least, that Paul isn't saying, tell those rich guys to sacrifice. He doesn't tell them to do that. He tells them to get their focus right. To recognize that they can use their money uh, for doing good and for being rich in good works and being ready to distribute, free to give, literally, and to be willing to share, to be ready when a need is there to try to meet that need. The result is sacrificial giving. But you see, it's not a matter of focusing upon the sacrifice, but rather focusing upon the attitude. And when you do, no longer hope in, the, in earthly riches, but rather hope in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, then our attitude toward giving is greatly altered. Look over at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Now in this passage of Scripture, again, they are not told to sacrifice, but what they do is called a sacrifice. 
Verse 15 of chapter 13 of Hebrews says, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That's the first sacrifice. But to do good and to share or literally to give. Your King James Bible, it would be communicate is the word. But it is simply a matter of giving. Do good, give. And don't forget to do that for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. There are three areas of sacrifice, three things God calls sacrifice. A sacrifice of praise, of doing good, which is the production of divine good under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and finally, to give. You're to be willing to do that. Second Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. Now here's an example of sacrificial giving. People giving till it hurt and kept giving until it felt good. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those areas. How that in a great trial of affliction, a persecuted people, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Here they were, under great affliction, experiencing great joy, experiencing deep poverty, and given like mad. You see, a lot of times it's the person who has very little that is not very attached to what he has. It is often the person who is under great duress and trial that begins to get his focus correct and begins to be willing to surrender what he has to God. I wonder, do we have the attitude that produces sacrificial giving? Now you know, if indeed you do give sacrificially, with the right attitude, it's, it's likely that you'll be the only person that knows about it. You and God. A person like this doesn't crow about it. He just relaxes and lets God do His work in His heart and in His life. And then brings His gift and offers it willingly to God, not looking for any glory, not looking for any recognition, just simply available available to serve Him. So that's the first principle. Now we've run out of time, so we'll have to come to this next time and look at the remaining of this passage and then look at three other passages that deal also and bring us a number of other principles that have to do with giving. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so very thankful for this that you have begun to do in our hearts. We, we realize, Lord, that probably all of us here tonight have more than, than the people in the early church had by far. 
And yet, Lord, we've become so attached to material things. It's so easy, Lord, just to, to give a little bit and think we've done our part and withhold from you so much more because we're looking for some wonderful things for our own life in terms of money. We're building up treasure here upon earth because we desire things. We're unwilling to really share. Lord, we pray that you will help us to not count the cost, but simply to come to a place in our own attitude where we're willing to open ourselves to whatever you wish us to do. Make us obedient servants, we pray, and obedient stewards, and faithful in that which we are called to do. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.